Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Peter Uldrell, who studies Swedish history. And he has written a book, Kriksbrev or some word others directly translated to English. And how did, this is a war about 1726, is that for 1746, I'm sorry. And uh, it's about soldiers who re- wrote letters home. And it's, it's a real personal story because you get to read these letters that they wrote that have been drawn for a long time. And I, I want to know before we begin into the story, how, how did you come across these letters and how, did you start researching this project? Uh, yes, uh, the Great Nordic War is uh, um, a war that starts the year of 1700 and goes on to 1721. It is the last uh, war, big war for Sweden under the so-called uh, the Swedish greatness area in Scandinavia, who takes start at around 1560s and goes on then for... 140 years almost, and it is a time where the Sweden domestic polities, even after the greatest era falls, uh, try to orientate themselves to be, you know, somehow lords or dominating parts of the Baltic Sea. And this is what is the last war is about. The Great Nordic War is Charles XII is on the Swedish throne. He is attacked by arch enemies of Sweden, you can say. Um, Peter the Great, Saul Peter the Great of Russia, Frederick the Fourth of Denmark, Norway, August of Poland, and then comes uh, also later Great Great Britain, Hanover, or Prussian, and so on. So uh, it's a big war, and it goes along with the War of the Spanish Succession, who is 1701 to 1714. But this is a different war on the east of Europe, in the northeast, or, uh, and it's about the control over the Baltic Sea. That's what it's all about. Sweden are attacked and uh, because land succession they have done earlier in the earlier century and Sweden also have a young king. He's only 18 years when he has to draw into battle and uh, mobilize a a well-organized army but not not destined to go to the continent and fight. It's mostly to defend the Swedish uh, mainland which is Sweden, Finland. But it happens, and the war just goes on and on and on. Um, yeah, that's where it's, it's it's a dramatic war. Was this part of the Thirty Years' War, or was this before? Uh, no, the Thirty Years' War goes on uh, um, uh, 1618 to 1648. So that's, but you can say that that era of in European history is, that, that's where Sweden is expanding around the Baltic Sea. They... Uh, they can expand because they are very, very military organized or buying mercenary troops and partly domestic troops. 
but they are organized and they have so-called unusual kings because the kings they 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 fight on the battlefield in the in the in the in the spear you know and they uh, at the front all the time every time <laughs> so uh so so it goes back so it's it, that the empire is built under the 17th century uh and then this king now charles the 12th at the outbreak of the nordic war is there to defend it he doesn't start any wars under his regime he only says that he's going to defend what he inherited and he is the only ruler in swedish history was born to be an absolute ruler. Yeah, I remember because we talked about this in the Danish Empire, and they wrote this in the book as well, that Swedish kings as well as Danish were, were actually chosen and usually yeah. being successful and not inherited like most kingdoms do. Yeah, so so that's that's how it went. And uh, uh, he, he, you know, they... He ruled under uh, uh, the device of God and uh, and so on, and he doesn't he, he doesn't um, assemble the Swedish Riksdag or anything under his regime. He goes to battle, and he really never comes home until uh, 1715, and then coming back from the uh, from the battlefields, and he's also been in the Ottoman Empire in in Turkey for five years. And he's been fighting, but as he's been fighting, he's been very successful, but also heavy defeat by the Russians at the Battle of Potava when Charles XII puts the Swedish army to conquer Russia, go go to Moscow. (laughs) So we are going to talk about the technicality of why everyone wants to go to war against Sweden a little bit later. But first I want to know, how did you come across these letters that were done for so long? I came across them uh, when I was um, looking into some archives. They haven't been completely unknown before in Swedish history, but I would say they are basically invisible. They have been invisible. You have to be almost an expert to find anything written about them. Uh, So I knew they would be somewhere, but I could not uh, expect what I found. I found them not in Sweden. I found them in Denmark because they were part of, uh, you know, um, uh, central intelligence warfare, uh, where you snatched letters from, uh, you know, ongoing armies, or it was part of an intelligence war. And every army or diplomats, or, or, or if it war, wasn't war, you would, you would take letters to try to get information. It's about information. Also. Like today, information is, is you know, priceless. Uh, but what, what would often happen, and which certainly happened on the Swedish side, is what the Swedes snatch let, letters from the armies or from uh, uh, governments and forces of from Denmark, German states, England, and so on. But after that, usually they were burned because this was a secret they couldn't leak out. <laughs> mm. It was an open secret because everyone did it, but you didn't want to get caught. But in Denmark, these letters from the, the Great Nordic War and some other wars before that, they, they never burned it. They kept it. And there they were sleeping after 300 years. I found, I, I found them. And the number was staggering. There are thousands of letters. Hmm. What was it like to read these letters for the first time? Did you feel a connection with the soldiers? Did you feel their story? Uh, yeah, let me begin by answering that question in two ways. I would say that in Swedish history, despite 
the this the great Nordic War is legendary. It's the last of the of the uh, of the greatness kings who, who fights and actually then dies in the end. But uh, despite that, and despite that, uh, the ability to write and read was quite high in Sweden in the beginning of the uh, 18th century. Uh, we do not have any letters preserved from soldiers, foot soldiers, lower officers, and we don't. We have diaries, we have court books, and we have church material, and they write home and so on, but we don't have from the soldiers. So this material is rare that is so much from one campaign. So you get the whole picture. And, and how did it feel? It, it felt that you were... I was a little bit shocked reading that because you could say then that there was a lot of support for a war that, you know, caused in a country with, let's say, at the end of Charles XII's regime, around 16 to 18, uh, which um, he dies 18, shocked in Norway. There was about, about 2 million people in Sweden, Finland, and if you take some of the Swedish province on the other side of the Baltic Sea, um, but in the war, 200,000 men died from Sweden, Finland in this war, which is a considerable high, it's a mind blowing high number for such a little uh, empire. Um, and they were, they were positive to the, to the war, but they were also negative, and they would write about anything. They, they could write about it, it, the letters are in a way timeless, from they could be any war really, but we. My my biggest uh, biggest uh, find, I think, was that there was still a lot of support for the war, and but there was also maybe a conspiracy growing. If you read the letters, old conspiracies existed even then. Yes, to t- to <laughs> kill to kill this warrior king because it was thought uh, that he couldn't die. <laughs> so. Yeah, so there are many, many moving letters and also letters from wives to the soldiers, to the army, as well from the army, forward and back. And most of them are unknown writers. We don't know who they were. Many of the soldiers couldn't write, but they had maybe one, maybe man in their company could read. And then the other soldiers would stand in a, in a ring around him. Because the Swedish army was uh, organized by, uh, after... Mm local local uh, regions so they knew each other in the home counties and so on mm-hmm. so then there will be a lot of five six soldiers saying uh, say hello to my dear wife if i won't return in life we'll see each other in death so it was like a lot of stuff like that do you recognize that this in that uh, there is one by the handwriting that, that, that there is one person who wrote these letters or ten? do you see this in the handwriting of the letters uh, yes, you do. You 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 can see that uh, you can see that uh, the different the this different people written the the letters, and of course, also one must keep in mind with the letters that although it was a long time ago, uh, in the, in the ro- royal um, <clears throat> in the in the in the royal uh, rules was that uh, the the chancellor in the on the battlefield in the tents and so they had as an assignment to take you know, test examples from letters to see what they were writing about. So they wouldn't say they didn't, they want to catch spies. They don't want to, to write about bad war moral and stuff. So, but they, these were random tests they did, uh, taking letters from their own souls to check. 
Um, and sometimes officers write at home that I can't write what I want because the king is hanging over my shoulder. Mm. <laughs> so so uh, for, and let's talk about the relation before the war, before the war and see what, what, what caused everyone to invade world in Sweden. Did they have resources that they wanted? Did, but what did Sweden do to make everyone want to go to war against them? Uh, it was, a re- like I said in the beginning, it, it was uh, from the surrounding powers from the Baltic Sea. It was a, fa- uh, a, f- a fight about the Baltic states. It was a fight about some of the, the German states that was under the Kaiser, the emperor of Germany. And, and also uh, was about also Scandinavian power between Denmark and, and Sweden. Uh, so it was a revenge war where they thought that they could they could beat this 18-year-old king. Surely he couldn't he couldn't deliver battle and he had no experience. But he was born to, to, to go to war. He was trained the first steps he takes and on. He was he was he was trained to be an absolute ruler and he had a, a biography of Alexander the Great in his pocket and uh, and, and Gustav II Adolf who died at the Battle of Lützen. Uh, which you know he could relate to another Swedish king before him, almost ninety years earlier, around there. Uh, so he was he was really armed for this. So and he had a really good army trained and built by his father, who who died uh, in, in stomach cancer, uh, which was a tragedy for him. He never married, and so on. He became a became a legend and you know after this long war where Sweden loses uh, a position as a greatness power around the Baltic Sea uh, Voltaire in 1730 took up this tragic key Swedish King Charles XII because he was like an ancient hero thrown from the ancient world into battle that was his mindset that was Charles XII's mindset uh, and, and Voltaire used him to show them how uh, he had a king that had everything, but didn't know how to stop. He, he could only do war. He couldn't do politics. So then, therefore, it become like a, a hero, like from, you know, the Odyssey or something by Homeros, uh, who, who doesn't know what he has and throws it all away. But it was the book in France under the, under the 18th century that came out in the most copies. I think it came in 60 copies, which no other book... Uh, could match. So it was, it was spread all over and he has formed the picture of Charles XII as this tragic king. But you should know, people should know that he didn't start any wars. And he also became later in Swedish historiography um, a, a, a pretty a national symbol for what Sweden should be, especially under the 19th century and so on. And that, that's still going on. At the moment in Sweden today, he's very, very hated, I can tell you. Why is that? Is it because he didn't know the way to politics, or is it because he he caused so much? He caused so much trouble for the people, and so much more, so, so much famine, so much uh, soldier family after fa- family have to leave their sons to the war, and, and also the normality of war who, who goes to every home front where they have to have less of everything. Everything's more restrained, and uh, yeah, people were in the end very tired of war. And when people normally get tired of war, uh, uh, yeah, someone has to end them, and it did end. It did end, but it ended in Norway. 
suicide shot them by a sniper bullet or 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 a, a complot by the enemy uh, with, uh, with enemy and uh, Swedish officers. There's many theories how he died. He was shot from right straight through the head. So in in full darkness. Mm. So very very yeah, it's a mystery, but mm-hmm. <laughs> still publishes a lot of books on that theme. So. Mm. So did Sweden have any allies at all? Or did it just did it sound like they were surrounded by enemies, but did they had with Britain, like you said, in Denmark, the Danish Empire, Prussia, and uh, or sorry, the Holy Roman Empire, I believe, at this yeah. point, and uh, Russia, did they have any? So they didn't have any friendly relations, it seems. But did they have any allies? Or yeah, there, there was there were allies. They had the little state of Holstein Gottorp and one other. For a while, but the main uh, allied under the war was maybe the Ottoman Empire, the, the, the Turkish, the Turks. Uh, they, they were Sweden's allies. The, the Swedish main army on the campaign to rush Moscow in 1709 failed the summer in, in the summer of 09, where they had a great battle at Poltava. Main part of the Swedish army is still intact, but. Uh, um, it's not the situation, so they, it's good. So the Swede with hundred hundred lifeguard, one thousand lifeguards and, and administrative uh, court personnel personnel goes over and this this here disappears into the Black Sea area and, and you know stay there and he stays there for five years because after he's leaving, he has still an army that is about 17,000, 18,000 18, men. But the commander of that uh, force, he decides to, to surrender to the Russians, although although he, he had to do something that's never been heard of before. He, he, he On his horse, he went through the regiments and asked if they, are you ready to fight? And, uh, and one of the hardest regiments answers him and say, why, why are we asked now? No one ever asked. We can win. We can do it. And then he puts down his arms. The king on the, in Turkey went ballistic when he got this information. He had no field army anymore. Catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there were allies of Sweden. And actually, Charles XII in captivity in, in, uh, in Turkey, he managed to get uh, the German army, or sorry, the Russian army, surrounded by uh, Turkish forces, and he rides the whole day almost to get there and, and tell them what to do. But then the Russian Tsar, Tsar Peter, has made a deal with the Turk, uh, <clears throat> Turkish side, and he comes too late. And uh, so they are just, just march off. It could have all ended there, but it didn't. So, so it's a dramatic, dramatic stuff. And after the five years in, in, in Turkey, he comes back to Sweden in, in, uh, in, uh, in in 15, and uh, he launches, he goes uh, along uh, a land in, in Skåne, in the, in, uh, in the southern of Sweden. And the first thing he does really is to, uh, is to launch, a, launch a new campaign. And this is where this book that I've written, uh, War Letters, Charles Twelve Soldiers in Norway, uh, comes in because the first Norwegian campaign be- begins he is then so threatened, uh, the Sweden, all, all that's left of Sweden, who was, you know, at 1658, the Swedish Empire was 
so big that the Baltic Sea was almost an inland lake for Sweden. That, and that's they, that's the height of that uh, of that uh, greatness area. That was they they ruled hard military with fleet, army, and soldiers and organization and so on. But at 1716, every all that's left, Finland's lost, the Baltic states are lost, the the, the territorium in the in in the the German in Germany is also lost, and they are ready to invade. So he has to do something, and the 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 A plan for campaigning and, and do warfare is to attack Copenhagen over the ice from Malmö, which is like just crossed by a bit of the North Sea. Mm. So he sends troops, but the, the ice is not really going to hold. And then they have to change their mind. And then they launch an old campaign uh, plan to, to attack Norway, which, which then happens. It takes, starts in the end of February. And in March, they are in... Uh, uh, in um, what's you know the town that's new have a new name the main capital of Norway Oslo they go they come there but they they have no cannons with them there's so much snow it goes up to the over the, the bodies of the horses so they have to in deep snow hook the cannons off and they arrive and they they shoot from the Akershus uh, fortress the the the, the cannon balls uh, jumps on the ice and they have to go take go land and go aside but in the end they come and they have they have left the city but le- left a, a fortress Akershus that is fully armed with cannons snipers and 3,500 soldiers about and they the Swedes can't take it but they stay there a long time to try to make it happen and this is where the main part of the letters are written under this campaign then so yeah so you're going to read some of those letters later, but I'm I'm curious and I want to know did did the Ottoman Turks send some troops with Sweden to for this war or did, were they fighting alone? No, they they, they they didn't have any troops really. They uh, they had mostly support, uh, diplomatic and 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 war wise for a while, but not really active, I would say. Uh, but but did come though after the when they the Turks in the end kicked out. Uh, Charles the Twelfth, and he had to go, you know, out from there. And then what came to Sweden was a lot of uh, creditors that wanted to be paid for that. The Swedish court had been there, you know, field court, and so on. They wanted to be have, you know, money paid for them, and so on. That was came out of that. So it was a politics of maybe support, but never really with any army support. So that's that's the outcome of that. Uh, yeah. I want I want to go back a little bit before we move on and uh, ask what what did the West think about Sweden having a the having a ally in the in the Ottoman Turks because as you know in during that time Islam and the Ottoman Turks was an enemy of the West so how did the rest of Europe feel feel about this I I, I think they were uh, he I think Charles the Twelfth was partly looked at he, he launched a new army he told uh, one of his leading uh, uh, generals on the home front to a, a veteran to go create a new field army and put it back on the continent which which he did he was he was a bit successful he he, he saved sweden from innovation 1710 and he, uh, he also ma- managed to get down to the to germany again but in the end there he had to surrender uh, so i think that 
in, in, in Turkey, uh, Charles XII, were, they, they were pretty happy to have him there because he, he, he was, so, he was looked at as a, uh, a powerless king with no army mm. for, for periods. He went up and down a bit, but, but he sent also, you know, he sent also to Constantinople, he sent expeditions. So a lot of his officers and other, they were investigating and getting, mm. writing home about it's exotic, but it's also, you know, with respect. And, and uh, so, so he was unusual um, in that sense that he would just stay on there. But, but one of the, you know, explanations behind that is also that if you look at pictures of him uh, this enormously famous he was one, one of the most famous people even the duke of marlborough came to his camp when he was fighting on the on the Baltic russian front and asked him can you join us in in the war of the spanish success, success, succession war 71 to 14 but the king said no i have he didn't say much really but he definitely said but but the Duke of Marlborough, uh, who had a similar approach to war as Charles XII, you should fight them yourself and you should be in, in front of your own legions or troops. Uh, he was extremely impressed by him. He said, he is war. He is war to his fingertips. We would so much have him on our side. But obviously that didn't happen. But he was also, uh, Charles XII, he was also uh, depressed in, in Turkey. Uh, it, I, I think, and not only me, other researchers and, and so on, he had a period, because you can see on, 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 on portraits of him that he gets a little bit round uh, or he could easily pick up a glove from riding from his horse and just bend down and pick it up in full speed. Couldn't do that anymore. But, but leaving Turkey, he more and more, the bleachness disappeared and the colors came back. And he was in full high form again. And that was shocking. The most shocking thing was that he came back. That was what shocked his own time. Certainly the enemies, but also in Sweden, they, they couldn't believe it. We have, we have ruled this country for, he left 1700 and now it's 15 years later, he comes home. Oh. But he, he didn't go back to his capital though, because he, he said he, want to, he wanted to, to, come, to come back uh, when he had secured uh, the war. So he took part in the South and therefore went from there into Norway. Mm. Now, I believe you have some letters to read for us as well. Yeah, so, yeah. Sure, sure I have. Absolutely. If... Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Should we, should we do some now? Please do. Yeah, sure. I, I can... I'll give you a range of them. So, for example... Uh, give to the context that uh, it was always known to be very, very dangerous by Charles XII. Many people had tried to kill him, but he, he didn't want to die. Or didn't, he didn't die. <laughs> he was injured and so on, and shot in the foot, shot in the head, shot in the, in the cheek and so on. But uh, his officers knew that if they would be appointed to be in the lifeguard, it was, uh, yeah, they could be there tomorrow, basically. And one of the officers who write about this is Albert Poste, quite high up in the, in, the, in, 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 in the surroundings around the king. He writes to his wife, the king always write under the canons. It is very dangerous to be a, a part of the king elite uh, because you never know what he's going to do. <laughs> and that, that's how 
irrational Charles XII was. You, you could never know what he was going to do. Mm. Um, he was unpredictable. Very, very unpredictable, even for his own, uh, uh, own men around mm. him. Um, and then we have uh, from the range, we can also we can listen to this. Johan Ålqvist, who is a foot soldier. That's all I basically know about this man. From the 18th of March, 1716, writes to his mother, Sara Olufsdotter. He writes pretty long letters. Most of the letters are quite short, but, but very direct. But he writes like this. When you walk out over a street in the Christiania, you are like a butcher. For those, well, just one second. For those who don't know, Christiania at that ah, time sorry. was Oslo. Just, yeah. just want to make it clear for non-Scandinavians and may not know that Christiania at that time was Oslo. Yeah, and named after the Danish king, but mm. then changed to Oslo. Yeah, I take it again. Yeah. When you walk out over a street, you are like a butchered lamb. You do not know if you're going to get over that street and have your life in, in your own hands. So he's basically saying that they, and the snipers are killing. They're shooting from the Akashu's uh, fortress. They're shooting people all the time. All the civilians that stayed in the town and uh, the, the reserve army has taken place in Drammen and waiting for reinforcements from, uh, from Copenhagen as soon as spring come. Uh, as Norway was part of Denmark at this time. So uh, then they uh, uh, had these snipers and they, they shot also civilians, although they had white, uh, you know, um, white, white arm, something white on the clothes or around the arm. They shot, they shot like with everything that moved in that town at, in, in this campaign. So it's, it's quite, uh, one of the sports also was from Swedish officers to, to be in front of the of the snipers and so on. And one man he lost two legs just to take part of that game. But this was the that this was this army. They that they, they they found it as a as a test you should do. A crazy, absolutely crazy. Um, okay, so here I have another letter from uh, Jonas Granfeld is a is a lieutenant, 19 years old, and he comes from up the Swedish north in Dalarna, the county of Dalarna. He is his first uh, campaign, his first war. And it should be said here that the, the army that invaded Norway wasn't big, it was about 10,000 men, but very, very organized though. Um, and half of that army was veterans and half of it was newcomers. So the impressions in the letters, they go between these. They haven't seen the king or they heard about them. And when they see him, it's like seeing God. And Granfeld here, our 19-year-old lieutenant, is certainly one of them. He, he writes home to his uh, mother and he's very skilled writing. He probably read the Bible a lot. He, he writes like this. As I was told to take the night watch uh, on the lower headquarter i stood in full uh, armor all night with my rifle right up as something then uh, comes from the shadows i i give halt password and will almost shoot i start shoot but then i see it is him the king it is him the king and he comes comes forward and inspects me and then he leaves and, uh, and he writes about that. And then he goes on. And the next day, when I told all the men, 
uh, I went back on my day duty, and then the king comes by again. He lifts his tricolor hat for me. He recognizes me. He sees me. And that put so much courage in me, like half a month's salary or a three-month salary. <laughs> so very, right. Yeah, it, it's, it, I mean, so that, that is the charisma. He met the legend. The legend responded to the blueprint he heard about. He, he does remember everyone because he's famous for Dutch actually see the soldiers. It's how he gets and motivates a very little, little armor to perform beyond their best all the time. Uh, so, so that's a, that's a quite uh, it's a quite dramatic picture. One of many people who meets meets the king for the first time. Most most soldiers in this war, if you do a conclusion that write about the king, they don't see him walking. They see him mostly on horse. So this this Grandfell, the 19th year old lieutenant, is is a uh, is a quite rare uh, moment when he actually sees him walking because he's mostly at horse. And this is because he has a lot of war injuries. So he doesn't walk as fast anymore or quick. So he's mostly at force to keep up the spirit, if you know what I mean. Mm. <laughs> uh, here's another letter. Lunaquist. Oh, Lunaquist. Also, all I have. Christiana, or nowadays Oslo, Norway, the 12th of March, 1716, in a letter to his wife, Sophie Ulstotter. He feels now, now the total dark, darkness is uh, coming. The horizon is getting total dark for them there. He says then to her, if it should so happen that we cannot be speaking in this life anymore, so God help us all that we can meet in the eternal life. Because there, it, it will stand good with us again. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Also quite powerful. He's take, taking goodbye from his wife. He doesn't think he's going to come home. And um, another letter is from uh, the captain Anders Muller to his uh, wife Sara, uh, 20th of March, 16. This could be his last letter home. He is uh, talking about family. He'll be home soon and uh, uh, that he loves her dearly and that uh, talks about a, a war normality that soldiers always go through in all wars despite time changes and centuries a normality of like yeah it's tough and so on but he is in april 16 just like two weeks after this letter is written could be his last letter a norwegian sniper shoots him through the head did you when you read his letters that do you trace their families uh, did you, into that limits today, uh, did you or did you get contact with them from from the families that remains today? Or uh, yeah, it it uh, I've had uh, as the book has like uh, this book has had a long life uh, in Sweden. Now see how it does in Norway. Uh, I have had uh, uh, encounters from people who, who uh, want to know more about uh, the soldiers. But most of all, and some were related far away, but I remember one woman who contacted me from the borderline, uh, the border to Norway, uh, the county of, or the best um, uh, Värmland in Sweden, uh, which is close to the Norwegian border. She said, she contacted me one day and said, I, 
I read your book and I want to say thank you to you from the whole village because we are descendants of these soldiers. We're all, we never know what happened. I, I have heard the stories, but we never knew it was that, that there were letters. This is a remarkable find, she said. And then we had a long ongoing discussion about this and that. So that was probably the most, and she sent me a nice thank you call afterwards. It felt like she said, I said, well, finally the letters have come home, I said. <laughs> so... I know you said that most of the Danish letters were burned, but is there any Danish letters that survived as well that is readable? You mean in uh, in the Danish archive? In Danish or Swedish archive, as far as I know. Uh, yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there is a few and so on. But uh, I know the Swedish Riksarkiv, they had also snatched letters from the Danes, but they they were given back in uh, fifty years ago. And uh, and the rest I don't never ended up in an archive because they burned and that, yeah. that what the reason why they survived in Denmark is maybe because uh, the 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 Danish king or the the, the, the Danish absolute uh, state uh, under Friedrich the Fourth of Denmark Norway organized he had a postmaster organized a quite. Uh, a system that eventually, you know, looked into what what were their own citizens doing, really. <laughs> so, so I think they're part of that. Although they weren't they weren't so easy to find. No, they weren't. So, how does this war end, and how does Sweden lose the war? Uh, well, the first the first uh, attack on Norway in sixteen is is uh, regarded in history writing in Scandinavia. Especially Sweden, of course, uh, as a failure campaign, it is uh, the last breath of a, of a warrior king with a a, a a kingdom, Sweden, Finland, who is super tired on war and wants to get rid of him. But that's not what you see in the war letters. You you see a, you see a king who is newborn. He really believes in this and he wants to determine to to keep what he inherited. He doesn't want to. You know, go on longer, but he opens up to more diplomatic solutions and so on. But uh, the Lord's troops in the 16 campaign leave Norway um, maybe July, August, but they are basically just a few soldiers here and there on borderline territory. And uh, and then uh, there is an interesting thing. I will I will I will wrap it up. But then there's an interesting thing happens here in the in the in that period is that uh, Frederick I gets a letter from Peter the Great of Russia and Frederick wants to with Tsar Peter of Russia now, now let's get him now we invade, now we take him, send the fleet to Skåne but Tsar Peter writes back, writes back and says that I am not going to do that because I have seen what he has now done Shostra, with an all little army of 10,000 men, he almost cap- captured Norway so he he so that stops the invasion. So the this campaign wasn't wasn't useless or anything or failed. It stopped the other allied states to invade Sweden, and and then and 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 then, of course, he goes back to Sweden, mobilizes, come back to Norway two years later in 1718, and then has an army of forty thousand men to attack in Norway from two fronts, from the south and from the north. And and that was just like days from succeeding when he was shot in his head and the, the war kind of ends there. Mm. Was he murdered? Was he murdered or not? 
but there was no one behind him, no leader, no heirs. I mean, he sister took a throne for a while and so on, but he, he didn't have it. There was no natural leader behind him. He was the war. So it ends with, it ends, ends three years later with a war treaty where Sweden keep Finland and a little foot in one of the uh, German states, but they, they lose uh, the Baltics. They lose everything. They're, they're not a greatest power anymore. So, so who's a seed child as well, since you said he never met, got married, he never had a child. So how, does, who, how did they choose his succession? Um, well, his sister had a throne, uh, but that was just a marionette regime for yeah, like a year or so. And then came her uh, her husband, Frederick, who was uh, German, and took the throne. So he became king then, after this. Uh, so yeah, that's what happened. And then, uh, and then of course, the empire was lost, but it didn't stop the Swedish like ambition to be a new, to go on with this. It lived on, like I said, from the 50s, 60s, and 250 years forward. The thought of being... Uh, lords over the Baltic Sea and rule was an ongoing uh, politics. So that that didn't really disappear. That was still there, although if the nation was felt that they got away with, you know, the breath in, <coughs> in their throat. So, and so on. Yeah. In, in 1740s comes a new war against Russia. <laughs> so but it, yeah. it is the, the, the big winner of this war. The big winner is Russia. They reached the Baltic Sea. They start to build uh, St. Petersburg on uh, Swedish territory, on the Bay of Finland on the other side, uh, and so on. So they are the winners. And I, 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 w- I will actually quote uh, Winston Churchill here, who is, he was also a great historian. Um, so if you read him, you can find out this, for example. He says uh, that he says about Charles XII, he says uh, he, was, uh, he was the only one who tried to stop the, the Russians from reaching the Baltic Sea, and which is like was a disaster, of course, for the rest of Europe. And that's what he, he means by that. Mm. So, so, yeah, I would, of course, later Sweden would actually get Sweet Norway. and mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that is uh, that's also a little bonkers. Napoleon Wars, yeah, they managed to 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 uh, yeah get get uh, get Norway, and that goes on to the beginning of the twentieth century. Yeah, exactly. So it's not that long ago, but also very long ago. But but it should be said also that un- under the Charles XII's wars in Norway, he 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 was also good at propaganda wars. So he he did pamphlets and stuff and handed out and said that it's much better to be under under Swedish rule than under under Na- uh, Danish rule. But what he didn't know maybe in his full extinct was that Norway had a lot of, you know, freedom under Denmark. They basically had yeah. a, uh, so much freedom. So that uh, that didn't work at all. <laughs> yeah, so we we actually discussed that in the Danish episode, second part of the Danish Empire episode, that, that Norway had much more freedom yeah, and this has been quite a debate if they really did have freedom under the Danish Empire, or it was, you know, from according to Michael French, but he said that it's quite a debate if Norway had that much freedom, or if it was just, you know, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it's been a debate whether or not Norway actually had as much freedom as we think they had. Yeah, I, I can see the debate. I haven't talked t- taken part of that debate, but. 
I, I can see only that in this war and when he's do when the Swedish king is doing that Charles XII, uh, it, it is a clear mistake, but because it, it doesn't really work. And and you can also see that uh, a lot of the soldier letters write, write like uh, um, they were they write like this. The, the, the Norwegian uh, uh, farmers are better than many soldiers we met on the on the on the on the uh, Estonian front or or the Polish front and so on. They compare and think, what, why is why are they are because they're high. The resistance that the the, the, the milice of farmers and a little bit of Danish officers, but also some Norwegian soldiers, of course, but most of them are not there because they are sent to the continent by the mm-hmm. Danish king. Uh, they are highly motivated to defend Norway. And, and that's the kind of thing he fueled by telling them that it's better to be under Swedish rule. My answer to your question, if, if there was a kind of bigger freedom in Norway and so on, well, it was le- at least better than it was to be under Sweden. That you could certainly see in this time uh, that that goes on. Of course, uh, many, many people are writing about it. In, and uh, I mean, people who lived in the moment they lived in the moment of war do or die mm. and i discussed with a previous historian that was on this podcast as well that norway relied heavily on the drain supply from because of the landscape that norway has to what it's not wasn't much enlightenable for farming as well so no. they relied heavily on the drain supply from the denmark as well yeah uh it, 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 it. The, the Swedish, uh, the, the letters from this, uh, these campaigns says about that the, they have problems with putting up. They had like maybe a few cannons for artillery in, in if they were flat ground, but they had, like I said before, no one for, you know, conquer uh, 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 fortresses or so. Uh, but they, they can't put them up because there's, there's no one that, that they, they it, it, it doesn't work for this warfare because terrain is so different. And also they write constantly that they are going on a, a scouting tours and stuff and they are attacked by farmers. They hide behind in the forest and they shoot from nowhere and people are dead before they hit the ground when they shoot them in the head from pretty co- close range because they, they know the home front. And this is the type of, type of what you would call today guerrilla warfare that is so, is so successful. So they, they have an enormous respect for it in there, and they're almost like ghosts. Thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you on. And before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote, any social media, any links you wish me to put in the description? Now, before you say anything, I just want to say that, unfortunately, for now, if for my English listeners, yeah. that the book is only available in Scandinavia. And so if you want to read the book, unfortunately, you have to know Swedish or Norwegian or Danish for that matter. So, yeah. so unfortunately, not available in English yet. I hope oh. Maybe one day, but yeah. Maybe one day. Yeah. Do you have, not just ask, do you have anything to wish you wish to promote and the links you wish me to put in the description or social media? Uh, uh, yeah. I have, what do I have? It's a good question. Historians are not good at this. I'm joking. <laughs> but, uh, what do I have? Well, I am actually, I'm actually doing another book about this theme where it's called in English. I can translate it for you, um, although you don't need it. But I'll translate it for the viewers, of course, by putting it in nice words. It's called "The Downfall of a Warrior King," mm. which shows the twelfth to the end. 
it's a book that on a large scale scale has its scene in Norway, where I go deeper into local society and, and material people who met the kin and know, know his mindset and so on. So it's a, like a, a biography, you could say, about him under the last years of his life. But there were new sources give deep insight to his mindset. So, and these are sources we, we never turned to before because we didn't know they were there. And mm. um, my name is Alan. This has been with that age 12. Join us next week when we take a look at the Italian mafia, Cosa Nostra, and the history of the Italian mob. This has been Well That Age 12. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. And please do take the time to rate us on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts. Please give us five stars. You can give us one star if you want, of course, but please don't. We prefer five stars. And uh, yeah, this has been Alan. We are on Instagram under on, on Well That Age 12. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Please like, share, and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.